Hey everyone! Welcome to the RUF at TC podcast. RUF is a community on campus learning about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. For more information about and ways you can support RUF at TCU, please visit ruf.org slash TCU. We've been saying all semester long that in this book of Revelation, John gives us images. He gives us images that are meant to stir and to pique our imagination. We said that the images that we hear on the pages are more for our ears than our eyes. Or they're meant to be heard to get at the heart to awaken our eyes. Hence the title of the series, Awakening Images. Okay? So we've got to remember that because tonight we're going to get to see a little bit more of this imagery falling out. And I'll say this. Um, this chapter is part two of what I tried to start last week. And if you, if you haven't heard it, I recommend you going back to our podcast and listening to this and uh, getting a, a picture of this. But I'll just quote one author here. He says, the vision of Revelation 4 and 5, listen to this, is the pivotal vision of the book. Everything revealed in the rest of the book is revealed relative to what we're going to read tonight, to this vision. So it's the apex. And i got to tell you on a personal note, I am thrilled to share this with you all. I have been so encouraged in my prep. I feel like I've just scratched the surface on it. So uh, may God bless us tonight as we seek to understand his word um, together. So let's pray together and ask God to help us to understand what he would like to show us tonight. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us now, that you would open our eyes, that we might see Jesus. Jesus, we pray that you would, having done the work of your Father and now ascended to the right, his right hand, that you would, along with the Father, send the Spirit that we might know you and that our, draws might, might, our jaws might drop tonight. And we pray all of this in the one who is the one who was slain for us. Amen. So what is John showing us tonight? He's going to show us the work of the Lamb, hence the title of tonight's sermon. But what is he going to show us about the work of the Lamb? And I want to suggest it's this. The reality of the work of the Lamb, that is what it is. Secondly, the result of the work of the Lamb, which is what it accomplishes. And then lastly, the response to that work. And y'all, here is my hope tonight. My hope tonight is that seeing what Jesus has done for us, that no matter what your story is and what you're shouldering, that you might be in awe tonight. That you might be in wonder about what Christ has done for us. That's my great hope for tonight. So let's begin by taking a look at the reality of the work of the slain lamb. Here it is, point number one. The reality of the work. I want you to look with me. Look at verses 5 and 6. I start there because up above it says this. That there, came, that, there, that, there, that there was a point here where there was nobody able to open the scroll. Did you catch that? that? That last week we talked about John seeing a throne. And at the center of heaven, there sits this throne where angels and um, myriads and myriads of them, as we'll come to read, are surrounding it. So here John sees one seated on the throne and there is a scroll or a book in his hand. We'll look more at that in just a moment, but for now I want you to remember that John wept bitterly. Why? Here it is. Because there was no one who could open that scroll. There was no one worthy to do it until 
verse 5. Then we are told that there is one who is, quote, found worthy, and it's the Lamb. But what makes him worthy to open the scroll? What is it? And here it is. John says, it is because he has conquered. Did you catch that? It says it right there in verse 5. And the elders said to me, weep no more, because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So that, there's the result, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now we will look at what the scroll is in a few minutes in our second point. But for now, I just want you to see what this work is. Primarily, primarily speaking, here is what we see. One of the elders says to John, weep no more because the lion. Now what was a lion? This was, this was messianic language. This was, this was steeped in a sort of Hebraic thought and culture that there would be one who would come like a lion. It's direct reference from Genesis chapter 49 verse 9 where there would be one like a lion from the tribe of Judah who would come and conquer, who would come and conquer real enemies as it were and would reign and would rule. And so John is told, look, it's a lion. But did you notice what happened? When John turned, he didn't see a lion, did he? What did he see? Verse 6 tells us, And between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into heaven. So when he turns, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. Now what is John doing here? Is he trying to confuse us? No, 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 no. He's actually taking two images and putting them together. This is a lion-like lamb. It's a lamb-like lion. It is one who conquers, but it's been conquered. How? By a lamb standing that was slain. You see, when they would have heard this image, they would have known exactly that this pointed back to the Old Testament imagery of the Passover lamb, where a lamb was slain so that the people might go free. There's also an image from Isaiah chapter 53. Listen to what... Isaiah writes, he writes this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Here it is. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Here it is. Yet He opened not His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So He opened not His mouth. You see, deeply embedded in this text, the work of the lamb is at the very center of it is an image of a lamb that is slain. You know, this is graphic imagery. This is of a lamb whose throat has been cut and the wool is matted with blood. Why? Because this is a picture of a lamb. Now the question is, who is the lamb? And without a doubt, the lamb here is is Jesus himself. He is the one who has been slain for us. Another image behind the slain lamb is the sacrificial system. And this is, what is so, this is what is so important for you to understand. That when a lamb or a sheep was offered up by the priest, 
the priest would press their hands on the head of the lamb to identify or to symbolize rather identifying by putting their sins of the people on the lamb and the animal was sacrificed and that symbolized atonement for their sin and here's the point the slain lamb is slain precisely for the sin and the guilt of the people this not only was a picture of him overthrowing the powers of sin and death which Christ certainly did but it is a picture of him serving as a substitute for his people a people who did you catch it there from every race tribe tongue and nation Americans Canadians Mexicans, the Chinese, the Japanese, Australians, every tribe and name, nation and people group that's ever lived. Jesus has made them His people because of His death. Because the Lamb was slain. That's what I want you to see. And I want you to see this key principle illustrated here. I've mentioned this before. I love this illustration. Many of you will never have heard of the NBA star, Dickie Simpkins. Now, the reason why his name is so important, and perhaps is most likely unknown to us, that this man actually has more NBA championships than the megastar Charles Barkley and just as many as LeBron. Do you know why? He has actually three of them, and he won them all with the Chicago Bulls in the years 96, 97, and 98. In 1996 and 97, here it is, he had zero points, he had zero rebounds, zero assists, zero blocks, zero steals in the entire playoff run. Why? Because he played zero minutes in each of the games. Yet, his ring, his three rings, are the same quality, the same shine, the same cut as MJ, as Scottie Pippen, and Kerr. And here's the question, why? He was on their team, and he benefited from their work, their sweat, their effort. They were his champion in the record books, and because they were, he now is a champion in the record books, though he contributed nothing. And here's what I want you to see in a like fashion. The slain lamb tells us that Jesus has done all of the work to make things right between us and God. And that's really, really, really good news for us. Why? Because for those of us who are spiritually tired, who are just worn out, we need to hear this. You see, what lies at the heart of reality itself is a slain lamb for sinners. And that means what lies at the center of heaven is good news of finished work. That means that what, 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 what lies at the very center of heaven as well is that a relationship with God isn't a set of hurdles to jump over or a checklist to be done. Jesus has done it all. And this is good news for spiritually tired people. I love how somebody pointed this out to me once. That Buddha's last words were strive without ceasing. But Jesus' last words on the cross were what? It is finished. It's finished. For those of you who are spiritually exhausted, I want you to know there's rest for you tonight in Jesus. You can cast yourself on Him. He has done the work. It is 
finished. But this is also really, really good news for those who look like failures in their life, who actually can't keep their life together. If the land stands for all eternity, it means that you are secure. And that work remains forever, never ever to leave or depart from the throne. And therefore, if you are those for whom he was slain, as long as he stands, his work for you stands. In short, for the tired, Christ, not you, has finished it all. And for the failing, Christ has finished, not partially done, but finished it all. And utterly, it is utterly different from any other religion out there. In fact, it's not a religion of works at all. It is a relationship borne out by grace. And I'm telling you, it's the best news that you could possibly hear. And that's the work that he's done. The work of the Lamb. This is what you must see. That their standing at the throne is the finished work of the Lamb. Now also, let's take a look secondly though, not just at the work of the Lamb, but what that work accomplishes or the result of the Lamb. Here's what you must see. Verses 1-4, through it tells us this. It says that John saw in the right hand of him was seated on the throne a scroll. A scroll written within and on the back. Now that would have been a rolled up thing like this. And that there was writing on the inside and on the outside of it it was written too. Which means it was full and it was complete. And I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. Because it's important to know that no matter what is inside of it, that Jesus is the one who is worthy to open it, the text tells us. That he is the one who is now able because of his slainness. Because the Lamb was slain and has completed that work. He now has conquered and He is now able to open it. So here's the question. What is, this, what is in the scroll? What is it? It's important. It's mentioned eight times in this text. And here's what it is. It is the whole of human history. It's the whole of human history from beginning to last. Listen to what one writer, Daryl Johnson, writes. He says, It is the scroll of history. It contains God's plan for establishing God's rule in the world. It contains God's plan for bringing the original purpose of creation to fulfillment. It contains God's plan for bringing the kingdom of heaven on earth. And it contains the meaning of history, of world history, of your history, of my history. And we might say that the scroll is the content and the meaning of history. So what's in this scroll? All the reasons that you weep. All of the sorrows that you've ever had in your life. If you've ever asked the question why, it's in that scroll. If you've ever cried out how long, it's in that scroll. If you've ever wondered why in the world Is this happening to my life? It's in that scroll. And it not only is that scroll that contains what has happened in your life, but it is the plan of how God will work out all of history for his own purposes. And the reason that John is weeping is because he's afraid that it might not be opened. And that has profound significance not the least of which is what one author, Pete Lightheart, writes. He says, if the book is not opened, cries of distress will go unanswered, hopes unfulfilled, injustices unavenged. 
And here's the thing. It's not just that these are bare facts. The scroll contains their meaning too. And I think that's what's so important. Why? Because it's telling us the end of, it's the end of everything, the great goal, the point of everything. For what purpose did these events take place? Oh, and we desperately long for this, right? Either life has some sort of meaning or it doesn't. And John is on the cusp. It's literally like the meaning of the universe is contained in this scroll and it might not be opened. And if it doesn't get opened, that means there is no point in anything. It means that your life and the sorrows that are in it are pointless. It means the meaning of your life is pointless if that scroll is not opened. And I think that this is critical. This is critical before we rush through this, that we understand that this is actually a scroll of meaning itself. Listen to what one philosopher, Bertrand Russell, is a British philosopher, wrote. He was, a, he, was, he was not a Christian, but he wrote this. I just want you to listen to what he has to say. He says that man, you and me, that man is the product of causes which has no prevision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes, and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocation of atoms. That all the labors of the ages, that all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius, listen, are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. What's Bertrand Russell saying? The beginning of your life is meaningless. The end of your life is meaningless. Have the courage to admit that what's in between is meaningless as well. And what John is saying, there's one who's able to come and open the scroll and show that it has meaning. That it has life itself. You see, either there is some grand point to our existence or there is not. Life cannot be both ultimately meaningful and ultimately meaningless. Either John is wrong or John is right and Russell is wrong. And the scroll contains not just the meaning of all that will pass, but contains of all that will and must happen. Verse 4.1 And weeping, John finds no one who can open it and who can bring it to its good end, who can secure it that will have lasting meaning. And so he snot cries because the terror grips him until what? Until the Lamb. Until the Lamb grabs hold of it. One who has seven horns of power. Seven horns. Horns are images of strength and power. And the eyes that are there are for wisdom and insight. The infinitely wise, the completely wise, the completely powerful one has now taken the scroll and as we'll see in the next several chapters, we'll break every single one of those seven seals and unveil God's plan and the macro story of all of history. Now, I just belabor this really quick because I want you to see this. Perhaps you're here tonight or you have friends that are seriously considering the claims of Christianity, but maybe they're doubtful. I just want to ask you this. Would you be willing to consider that there might be more than what meets the eye and therefore, real objective meaning in life. You see, a materialist, nihilistic view of the universe, I would suggest, cannot actually be lived out consistently. Why? Listen to what one writer 
Tim Keller writes in his book, Making Sense of God. He says this. He says, A materialistic view of the universe says we aren't here for says that we aren't here for any purpose. We evolve strictly through a process of the strong eating the weak, and nothing we do here will matter in the end, since everything will burn up in the death of the sun. Yet, we're told we shouldn't live selfish lives, and we should treat everyone as having human rights. Humanistic values in no way fit with that view of the universe. They're held despite that view of the universe. So if a secular person believes in humanistic values, it requires a gigantic leap of faith. Y'all, Keller is on to something there. And I just want to suggest, maybe, would you be willing to suggest that there's a better explanation of the world and your experience too? The message of Christianity is that God has come into His creation and by doing so gives it and everything in it real meaning and value. But maybe most importantly... In a culture that demands that meaning is only whatever you want it to be, which is ultimately very fragile, that there is a way for your life to have real lasting purpose. That it has meaning. And what is that meaning? Well, if Jesus, ran- if Jesus ransoms you, which really means purchased in verse 9, then this means your life, y'all, is worth the blood of the Lamb. It's worth the blood of God Himself. It's so valuable that He would spill it for you. And that's the, that, that, friends, is the picture of the response of this. That, that, that the, the meaning of it, that the result of it is that, is that the mystery of the universe. I can't, I'm, I'm, language is failing me. That the scroll can be opened. And that life has meaning. That's wonderful. It's so beautiful. And look at the response to the work. Look at to the response at when at when did you catch it there in verse eight? Look what happens. The text tells us this that when he, the Lamb, Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, and so on and so forth. And as one pastor put it, that after Jesus the Lamb takes the scroll, it's like it's like heaven erupts and goes supernova. It's like it goes to infinity and beyond because, of, because, because the Lamb has taken the scroll. Because there's someone who is worthy to open it. Why? Because there is one who has given meaning to the universe, to creation itself, to your life and to mine. The lion-like Lamb who was slain. And to know the existence, that your life has meaning and value. To know that everything, in fact, is not random. That it's not left to chance. That, that, that it happens according to the counsel of the sovereign, good Lamb who was slain. To know that every sorrow that you every faith, ever faced will actually be revealed in some great purpose. That every why you have ever cried out in the dark has a real answer. There is only one response. It is praise. It is praise, the text tells us. I love what C.S. Lewis famously points out in one of his essays. He says the following about praise itself. He says, I think that we delight, that we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. 
It is its appointed consummation. You know, the, you know, the only way this is ever going to make sense is if we get out of our heads that praising just means singing songs. Praise is just you opening your mouth to what you love in your heart. I mean, have you ever heard a killer psalm and you run into your roommates and you're like, you have got to check this out. You've just worshipped. Or have you ever eaten a fantastic steak, cut a little piece off and given it to your friend or your date and said, you have got to try this. What are you doing? The praise of the food is actually the consummation of the enjoyment of the thing. And I would like to suggest to you this. You never really enjoy something until you praise it. Did you see that touchdown? That was amazing. He is the best guy. Y'all, I wish you knew him. The job that I've got, I'm so thrilled about. I can't believe it. I've gotten into this medical school, y'all. It's the best. I'm so, whatever it is, the praising consummates the enjoyment of the thing. And what this text is telling us, like C.S. Lewis points out, you haven't really enjoyed something until you've praised it. And here, from the living creatures to the 24 elders, to the millions of angels, to every creature in creation. Think about that. The birds, the hippos, the newts, you and me, the four living creatures that we, we couldn't even define, that every last creature in all of creation is bowing down, giving honor and worth and praise because the Lamb was slain. I love thinking about it like this. All of creation breaks forth in praise. They bring out praise and joy because of this. What, what is causing it? The Lamb was slain. Because the Lamb has been slain for sinners, heaven erupts. Do you see that? Because Jesus has died for sinners. You would think it would be something else. Something not having to do with us. But heaven is exploding in joy and praise because the Lamb was slain for sinners. Oh, does, this, does this not make you marvel? Is it not the best news in the world that Jesus does this for you and for me? The Apostle Paul says this, in Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He is being praised precisely because He has been sent by the Father to reconcile sinners and defeat the powers of sin and death by His blood. And all of heaven can't contain themselves anymore. An infinite explosion of joy and praise increasing every second from here until all eternity, all for the Lamb who was slain. If the Lamb was suffering, then what this means, y'all, is that suffering itself will be part of following the Lamb. 
This would have been profoundly helpful to just know if you were in the first century, if you were suffering as John's audience was, and it's helpful to know in the 21st that this is critical because while I never wish or want on anyone suffering in this world, it is going to come. You cannot escape it. And if you don't see the conquering, if you don't see conquering through weakness, that the lion conquers in a lamb-like way, you'll be incredibly jaded and cynical when suffering does come in your life. He says this goes against the health and wealth gospel that is being paraded and trumpeted that when suffering comes, I must not be doing enough to please God and that therefore there must be sort of some unconfessed sin in my life. There may not be any. It might just be that you're following the Lamb. I love what Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr. once said. He says it here. He says this, There is no crown without a cross. I wish we could get to Easter without going through Good Friday. But history tells us that we got to go by Good Friday before we get to Easter. And he's dead right. Why? Because the lamb on the throne is a slain lamb. He's one who's given up his life for sinners like you and for me. But I also think, lastly, I also think that this, that this makes us see if you are complacent, if you have gone cozy with the world, that it might wake you up to see this. I think a lot of times we think, you know, Jesus is just so lucky to have saved me. I mean, he's so, he is so lucky to have me. And what this text is saying this, have you ever just stopped and marveled that the Lamb has done this for you? We deserve none of it. You will only marvel at the Lord's grace for you to the degree that you see Him giving it freely to you in the face of you not deserving it. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. John is saying that at the center of the reality itself is Jesus and because His work for His people, that there's real meaning and that you have the heart of heaven itself. And let's say for a moment that you've heard me at this last point about appropriately responding to the Lamb's work and you've wondered, how have I or have I even ever responded to this? Maybe I can press you a bit further in this closing illustration. Seth Meyers, the late night show host, uh, ran a story a couple of weeks ago about a man who was invited to a bachelor party. A man in Arizona was accidentally invited to a random stranger's bachelor party all the way in Vermont. William Novak of Phoenix received an, an email entitled, Angelo's Bachelor Party. Now, it came to him because of a typo in the email, which was intended for another William Novak in Vermont. But, deleting the email, like all of us would have done, Novak responds after reading the contents of it and learning about who Angelo is, and I quote, writes, effing count me in. <laughs> now, when the guys putting on the party read that email, they say, you're not the guy that we wanted to invite, but you sound awesome. Get your you-know-what. But because Will, and he can't be throwing cash around on random trips, what does he do? He starts a GoFundMe page to pay for the trip, which was funded 
in this many hours. Two. And to make sure he wasn't a psycho, the guys hosting the party made Will send a photo of himself and so they could pick him up at the airport. Will kindly obliged and sent them this pic right here of him doing karate. media and all of them get free ski lessons a dude from a local brewery shows up at the airport with a with a case of beer and they spend the weekend driving around in a Maserati all for free why all of this because of an accidental email address the news of a killer party and a guy who was willing to go now listen to me if an accidental invitation can bring this much joy. Oh, how much more. What a direct invitation from the host himself. Not only provide it, but absolutely guarantee your joy. Which is what you have tonight, and it's not an accident. Won't you come? Won't you come trusting Him to secure your spot at the greatest celebration reality has ever seen? One that, is, that goes on into eternity, getting better and better with each passing second. Revelation 5 is trying to help you see things that you can't or that you may have forgotten by showing you that there is a slain land and a massive celebration at the center of it. And He was slain for you, for the glory of the Father. And you know what this means? Listen to me. That all around you, right under your nose, a festival of joy is taking place. The book of Revelation ends at a table, at a wedding feast, in fact, because the Jesus has at long last recovered His lost bride that He lost in the garden. Do you hear the laughter within? Can you smell the rich foods and almost taste the vintage wines? Thunderous joy beckons you to come. The Lamb has done it all. Come to the party, even as we cry out, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray.